the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back as we head into Hour 3. I am Seth Leibson. Totally delighted to have in studio uh, Hugh Holman, former mayor of Tempe, attorney in town and educator. And, of course, Lewis Holman. They, um, he is the managing director of Inside Analytics, LLC, to keep our corporate uh, – uh, our, our, cor- veil. our corporate veil intact. Uh, Inside Analytics is actually spelled I-N-C-I-T-E. That's correct. And uh, we try and uh, have them in every Tuesday when they're in town. And uh, it's just one of the most popular hours of the week, and I know it certainly is for me. So welcome, gentlemen. We were talking a lot off air about things over the last couple of days. And uh, it's unfortunate, of course, but some of the most interesting issues in constitutionalism, in moral philosophy, do arise out of war, uh, out of war conditions, out of war examples, out of war analogs. I think when I was in London uh, studying, probably two-thirds of my moral philosophy courses had to do with studying issues that came out of World War II and Vietnam. In any event, so here we are, and uh, no greater uh, two people to have these discussions with than you two. Start wherever you want. I mean, we have issues of education. We have issues on the college campus. We have issues of uh, what's known as uh, jus in bellum, uh, the right thing to do in war, the conditions to going to war, jus ad bellum. So wherever you want, take it. Uh, I will start. This is Hugh, because we've been told recently that you can't tell the difference between it our voices. It, uh, that is true. <clears throat> we sound just alike, except when I'm clearing my throat. The, um, the start of this would be to pick up on what we have been facing uh, in the earliest days of the conflict, and that was students at college campuses rallying around the Palestinian flag, shaming Israel for allowing uh, 1,250 of its citizens and other citizens of the world to be murdered by Hamas, wasn't that a good thing? And watching uh, the the notion that uh, there will be no rest on stolen lands uh, or regarding stolen lands and watching this, I do want to put in a plug for a fairly brave actor in our state, uh, the president of the University of Arizona, mm-hmm. Robert C. Robbins, uh, put out a statement not condemning, but harshly referring to the proposed rally that students, the pro-Palestinian students on campus were going to hold. And he effectively put out a statement saying that this is a very important issue. Many people in that community, the largest Jewish community uh, in in Arizona, uh, would find it abhorrent and proposing that people not do such things. The students then responded um, by putting out statements, uh, the Justice in Palestine students' statement that they were now terrorized effectively, that they feared for their lives, that President Robbins had made this very hostile statement, yes. and that they were now canceling their rally because they feared for their lives. Because violence is a violence. <clears throat> Words are violence. Words are violence, and what's going on in, in uh, Israel is apparently only free speech. I believe they would describe it as praxis, technically praxis. speaking. That's Marx's as good Marxist that they are. Yes, uh, and, yes indeed. And so uh, I wanted to start there just to note that uh, your monologue uh, concludes by talking about the fact that we have failed 
on our college campuses to teach morality in a way that causes students not to give them a set of moral points, but to give them critically thinking minds that they can even have a framework in which to analyze what's occurred. And that the thought that uh, uh, now uh, Hamas and Palestinians associated with them are to be celebrated for mass murder of innocent people, babies, infants, children, uh, grandparents, all kinds of folks, uh, not to mention that they weren't all Israelis, 30 Americans, among many others who perished in a parachuting attack on a music festival uh, in door-to-door murder that took place. And I think as part of this wrapper that we need to continue to focus on in the future, we really need to think about what we now need to do in our colleges to reassert that this United States, these United States, have a moral code baked in them that assures that because of that moral code, we can argue about things. And I respect your right to free speech, but you must respect mine. And and those who are now following philosophies, particularly Marxist philosophies, that uh, decry my right to free speech because I'm not a Marxist – need to be examined very closely. And we have failed to arm our young people with the tools to unpack those kinds of questions. In that context, we have some you know, really great writing over time that uh, at the University of Chicago, President Zimmer's statement on what free speech means. You have President uh, Robbins in Tucson trying to stand up uh, for free speech while understanding that some things should not be uttered at the moment that some people want to utter them and that there is that balance. In all of that, your your monologue makes reference to the fact that men are not angels. And we talked on the last show as a underlying theme of why this society is different than the Marxist glory that uh, folks want to achieve. And that is that our founders understood human beings are imperfect. And as imperfect beings, we must balance our society and our governmental systems with that understanding, because it was to really reflect back on your monologue and folks, you should listen to it, pull down the podcast if you didn't listen to it live, um, because Seth's writing makes this point very clearly that human beings are imperfect and that as imperfect beings, we must struggle diligently on these issues. But to prove that our society was built on that notion, that it is different from some uh, sense that Marxism is going to create a utopia or that we can find a philosopher king who won't lead us into totalitarian terror. It is Madison in 51, and I quote, If men were angels, no government would be necessary. If angels were to govern men, neither external nor internal controls on government would be necessary. In framing a government which is to be administered by men over men, the great difficulty lies in this. You must first enable the government to control the governed, and in the next place, oblige it to control itself. That's where we start. Lewis, then, I think, needs to set the frame on the context we're working in. So uh, uh, before I get to the context on the ground, which I also want to do, I want to talk a little bit more about the sort of uh, educational philosophical context about this. So, so why are 
we seeing these moral deficiencies in our, our, our what used to be a liberal education. I think this is tied in to a lot of the reasons we see sympathy for the Palestinian cause in that we are moving to a progressively more anti-Western viewpoint in our universities. We see uh, an abandonment of the key moral cornerstones of Western civilization, uh, Judeo-Christian texts, the works of Aristotle, the works of Plato. These are no longer core to most college curriculi. They are instead optional or relegated to some uh, nerds in the classics classes, potentially. Um, so we don't have that, that shared moral language as much. So there's a weakening there. We also then um, want to look at, at, at the larger Israeli-Palestinian conflict. This is one of those conflicts that has been uh, raging in some form or fashion really since 1948 uh, longer indeed than almost anyone in Gaza has been alive at this point. And in that, one, uh, so someone uh, uh, once told me that the way that you view this conflict says more about yourself and the political lens that you use to see the world with than it does about the conflict because it's so complex and multifaceted and it stretch back, stretches back so long. And so – what we're, what we're dealing with are people that are starting the the start button in, the, in their minds of this conflict, of the summary of how this thing plays at very different points in time. Some people's camera starts from the perspective of the Palestinians where a displaced group of people come to their shores and partition their territory and – uh, 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 in in their eyes that have created a legacy of historic injustices. Many Western sympathies uh, lie with Zionism and watching after the horrors of the Holocaust and wanting a, a place for the Jewish people. There's a lot of complexity at play here. And then it, within the tit for tat of the decades over time, uh, not that I want to use moral equivalence, you can see though that, that there's murder on all sides. There are, are what could be classified as war crimes, depending on how you want to read the Geneva Convention on all sides at varying points through these decades. And so depending on what meme you're using, what shutoff point you're using to assess the world through, you're going to have a very different view of this conflict. And that brings me to my third point. The difference between type one and type two thinking. Most of us see the world most of the time using type one thinking. This is like when you're driving, right? Things are automatic. Uh, you don't use any cognition to process them really. Type two thinking is a lot slower, more deliberate, more careful. And most people, when they assess politics, when they see a message on their team, they're only thinking using that type one thinking. They're not making strong moral calculus. And so much of this, this conversation is lost in sort of the uh, monkey brain, hindbrained tribal conversations that we allow ourselves to get caught in rather than ever breaching through to have a real moral ethical conversation between parties about what, what is right and just. Well, you set a fascinating table, both of you. Let me, let me, uh, let me put down some silverware on it and see what we can uh, digest. We are having a party then. Yeah, we'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Lewis Holman and Hugh Holman, my guests. If you want to have 10 years of conversation available for yourselves, <laughs> listen to the last 11 minutes. The things you two laid out, the thoughts and ideas you two laid out. Um, I, I, I just want to raise a, raise a few thoughts in response and take it from wherever you want to take it. With regard to 
students, students' views of the conflict in the Middle East and their moral sensibilities and uh, their diminished moral sense. Um, first thing that's interesting to me that I think is, is, is what Lewis said about where you start your understanding of things and this type one thinking and type two thinking. Mm-hmm. Type one thinking is almost a swallow or a blink of an eye. It's automatic. It's, exactly. it's something you don't spend a lot of time thinking about. Type two thinking requires a little more cogitation, I suppose. <clears throat> and a lot of students come to this with type one thinking. Uh, Israel oppressor, Israel colonialist, Israel bad, Palestinians right to revolution. Most of us approached most things with type one thinking, almost all of the time. We, we, we spend very little time engaged in type two thinking. And really, we reserve that for novel new situations where we really have to make an effort uh, because thinking is hard and our brains are uh, fundamentally lazy pieces of machinery and they don't like expending energy. It raises in that sense of it, though, two really interesting questions. One from, I think, a monologue from exactly a Tuesday back where we were talking about Orwell says if you can change – the words you can change the world. This was obviously not a thesis unique to him, but something he perfected in politics in the English language and certainly his book 1984. So you can inject the use of certain words to put on a trajectory a certain moral sense that goes along with the thinking. As Jean Kirkpatrick was writing in that uh, in that uh, essay of hers I was quoting last week, uh, this use, of, for example, of the word colonialist was changed in the international understanding of it by Khrushchev in the 1950s and 1960s. So of a sudden, Israel becomes a colonial power. I'll quote the political scientist Bill Maher, who said last uh, Friday, I think very aptly, in no sense can Israel possibly be a colonialist power on whose behalf were they colonializing. Might Israelis have something to do with Israel? Might Jews have something to do with Judea? Might we actually have an honest conversation about indigenous peoples. They cannot in any way be considered a colonialist. But under the Marxist change of language and international law at the United Nations through the 50s and 60s, that's precisely what they were to be considered, which raises interesting question number two. By the way, that takes a type two level of thinking to understand that. It's not a knee jerk. They're colonialists. They're not. But everyone on the college campus thinks they are, which raises a second interesting question. If they are, if there is a colonial power, is it still justifiable to treat them, to treat them the way they were treated, where you stack babies like cordwood in front of their parents before you kill their parents so that they can see their babies and then be killed? In other words, is terrorism justified to fight this kind of quote-unquote oppressive colonialist power? Those are two kinds of moral questions that these children never understand, which gets me to something. I would also ask Seth, sorry to interrupt, is there a statute of limitations on colonialism? Well, that's probably a really valid question because you say it starts in 1948 and I would say it does not start in 1948. I would say it started long before 1948. Uh, the, uh, the Arabs on the ground in Israel, the Muslims led by the Mufti of Jerusalem – uh, were in alignment with Hitler throughout World War II and were slaughtering Jews in the 1920s. I would say this long precedes 1940. Right. And, and, and that's, the, that's the, the, the thing about all historical grievance is that we could set our, our sights as far back as 2000 BCE Correct. and you would still have a relevant case. Correct. Correct. And, and I'm going to go one more. So we, we passed up the opportunity to talk about Indigenous Peoples Day yeah. because that is the counterpart. That is the yeah. uh, opposite side of the coin of yeah. who is a colonialist. Yeah. 
two and, Mondays ago. <laughs> yes, and very quickly, you know, listening to NPR on that day, mm-hmm. I heard all kinds of lovely stories, including the fact that a story opens with the fact, uh, with, the, with the statement that the woman wants to talk about people who were in Crimea who have been there for centuries. So apparently, two or three centuries is long enough to outgrow the notion of colonialist if you have the right news story for NPR to run. Right. Because my family's been in these United States before it was the United States, and so I think I'm not a colonialist under that model. That is part of the, it's the same challenge. At what point does the statute of limitations run on being a colonialist in the, in the hey, same way as right. what makes you indigenous? Because after all, it's only the last 20,000 years in which we ended up with people coming to the Americas. And so it's sometime between now and 20,000 years ago, you were a, is it is it you were there first, you planted the flag first, or was it that you're the most successful, so the Spanish come to Mexico and now Mexicans are indigenous? I'm not quite sure. That's part of this same issue. Where does time start? And the challenge we have in these moral questions is that's important, too. Because it raises different edges to yes, this question, uh, and and it is also for us important to discuss. That is that second brain thinking, the, the second order of thinking, and yet liberals want to use – Lewis calls them heuristics. I'm now referring to them as memes. Yeah. We're making decisions based on rules of decision-making that now have been boiled down on the internet to a picture in three words. Correct. Which, so you, which you is both related, are well, it's is related, it 2000 BCE or is it 1948? And does it matter, A? Yes. And it's kind of related to the whole question of race-based affirmative action. Let me add, by the way, on this one point. Yes. It is genetically the case that Jews from Israel have the same genetic makeup as, oh, I don't know, Palestinians from, quote, Palestine, unquote. That is to say, how can you call a Jew somebody who is colonialized and somebody who is not indigenous when they can trace their lineage to the same locations as those on the other side of the wall. The, um, so that, that, that the, makes me think that there's almost a, a historically optimal level of grievance that would work really well because it's got to be long enough, right? We, the statute of limitations has to be far enough back that you can use it to ginny up all sorts of useful claims, but it can't be so far back that those you would use the claim against also get the the counterclaim. So, right. for instance, so reparations in the United States. So, so for instance, the well, if does it's Barack Obama, get reparations or does he pay them? It's the statute of limitations is at least less than three thousand years because that would have been about the time that the Jews were were in Israel before the Babylonians scattered them to the wind. That there you go. And yet they were there before the Babylonians. Right. So so, but that, that's when they were there last. So most recently three thousand. So, then until 1948, there's sort of a gap. But but it's related to the affirmative action question too, race-based affirmative action. Whenever I used to hear underrepresented population, by what criteria? Underrepresented in what geog- geographical base? Underrepresented in Tempe? Underrepresented in Arizona? Underrepresented in North America? Uh, so there's that. But we're going to go to a break. I Polar just want- bears are underrepresented in, in, in Arizona, I think. I just wanted to say one in- one thing to an interesting point you were casting, Hugh, before we go to break, and we can come back on any and all of this. You said what we need to do in our colleges, and it made me think that's really the problem because I don't know that there's a real distinction between what the students believe and what the professors believe anymore, and I don't know who the we is anymore. Anyway, let me take a commercial break, and we'll come back on – Everything. I'm Seth Leibson. He's Lewis Hallman of Inside Analytics, and he is Hugh Hallman of Everywhere, um, including a lawyer in town and an educator and a 
civic philanthropist and so many things. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Lewis Holman and Hugh Holman are my guests. It's probably very much like the kinds of conversations uh, people used to have in college back when college is allowed for conversations uh, in wide-ranging formats late at night in the dorm rooms over a pint. It's not late at night. We don't have a pint, but we're having the conversation, so it's a delight to have you, gentlemen. We were talking a little bit about, um, well, let me try it this way. Let me try it this way, Lewis, if you want to play off of the affirmative action analog, you're welcome to. Uh, But it seems to me that in any conflict, and particularly when we're dealing with brains that haven't been educated well, compassion will always come before comprehension. Um, But then you can also have a misplaced compassion. It's not just a lack of comprehension amongst these students that shocked us. It's the lack of compassion that shocked us, that they can watch in real time a pogrom using the most brutal of tactics and march for the carriers of that terrorism while blaming the victims of that terrorism. This is a little bit of the debate between Megyn Kelly and Candace Owens, a little bit, whereas Megyn Kelly is saying, I am glad corporate CEOs are getting these students' names. Whereas Candace is saying, you know, I have hired a lot of students that marched for BLM and have come to see the light. There is something different and distinct between a moral offense that should shock the conscience and just another political position, I think, in the argument over race-based politics. Um, So I think it, it, it touches on these issues of both comprehension and compassion, misplacement of both. I don't know where you want to go with that. So I, for, 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 first of all, I, I'd like sense. to make sure I'm not being ambiguous and and unequivocally condemn uh, the Palestinian attacks. And no, no one, no yeah. one thought that. So, 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 but that I want to that everyone who's talking about it from this perspective has to say that because if you just condemn the atrocities. Um, uh, clearly, and then speak about what's going on in Palestine, you may get accused. The microaggression uh, assertion comes up. And everyone I've heard talking about these things makes that hmm. that uh, statement. Interesting. Okay. I hadn't heard it. But so so it. while I want to be clear about that, um, I also want to acknowledge that what is a moral outrage for some, what is a hot-button... You know, I see red now, fever dream, up in arms political pitch is for others a non-issue. And as you would not want them presuming which hot button political issues are the sacred cows, I I, I sit in the camp that that there should be no sacred cows and that people make mistakes and that uh, there is a point at which in public life we say stupid things because we are, as we all know, imperfect beings and that that should be at a certain point forgotten and forgiven. I don't think that uh, uh, immature stupidity is a capital crime that should follow one for their, you know, for the rest of their lives. And uh, and, but, I, and th- this is also why I'm against cancel culture as a concept. Like I don't want us keeping political lists of people because they dared to have the wrong opinion. They may be, you know, utterly morally bankrupt in doing so, but that doesn't mean that we should lower ourselves to 
in some futile exercise to prevent that because there will always be stupid people that have batty, dangerous, deluded ideas. And that is where I'm coming at it and set the table about the fact that the adults in the room are to blame, that we have established universities now that demonstrably are failing to educate our students with the tools they need that they can have critical conversations. Lots of stupid stuff got said when I was in college, and some of it even by me. That's, I mean, certainly by Seth, because it took him a couple of years before the light of conservatism shone on his brain. But in this instance, the outrage is so much, it is very difficult to excuse the human beings who are standing with those placards celebrating the deaths of, of Jews in Israel. At the same time, you heard me putting a lot of that blame on the failed university. I can't play it on air because it's too graphic. I'm going to play it for both of you during the break, and I'm going to urge our audience that is interested in doing this to go to Megyn Kelly's Twitter feed or X feed to see the difference that she's talking about. We'll pick up on this on the other side of the break. Hugh Holman, Lewis Holman, and I will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Hugh Hallman uh, is my guest along with Lewis Hallman. We try and do this every Tuesdays. I, I, I love these conversations. So thank you both for joining me for them, giving it to the audience with me. Lewis, as the person closest to the generation we're talking about in this room, I believe you get the next word on everything we've been discussing. Hugh and I's argument has been, has been that this is a failure of adults. Um, I don't know if we have adults anymore. That's another issue. When Hugh talks about what we need to do, I don't know if there's a we anymore. We have lost so many guardrails in this country over the over the decades that we are not in a post-postmodern world anymore. We're in a world where we don't even agree on the same nouns anymore. And it's hard. Anyway, you, you, you understand the discussion. You take it for anywhere you want. Sure. So – this is a really challenging topic and as, as we've said before, it's one that is steeped in ethical dilemmas and historical grievance. Um, we're seeing a lot of very ugly uh, uh, words and deeds and images, uh, not only of the conflict itself but of, of reactions and jubilation and denial and threats and outrage uh, on college campuses uh, as – People react to this unfolding, um, particularly on the on the pro-Palestinian side, uh, as as they look to obfuscate what is a deadly surprise attack that, were it proportionate, would have killed something like twenty thousand or twenty five thousand Americans. Uh, were our, our population, uh, were the population of Israel the same size as as the U.S.? Uh, so it's an enormous loss of life. Uh, um, and it was unprovoked, and uh, it was done to civilians. And so now we are in a world where a large segment of our countrymen are seemingly you know, jubilant and citing those that, that are ideologically anathema to everything that we stand for and that, uh, that we believe this country to stand for. And so now we have to ask ourselves soberly and seriously, where do we go from here? And it's going to be really easy. It's going to be very easy to take the lowest common denominator, type one thinking version of what is being said 
and claim that this is representative of everything and everyone, not only on the left, but on the right. And, and my, my response is, I don't know if it's lowest common denominator. As you were speaking, a Cornell professor at an Ivy League school was saying the Hamas attack was, I wrote it down, energizing and humanizing. And so when you say it was unprovoked, you have professors at Ivy League colleges stirring students to saying it was totally provoked. Right. And justified. And justified and energizing. You know, it's, 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 um, it's, it's right out of some of the stuff Paul Sartre was writing and some of the stuff Chinua Akibi was writing and some of the stuff that was being written on behalf of the anti-French, uh, the anti-French resistance uh, in, the, in the 1960s. It's the same kinds of justifications for the slaughter of innocents because they have a just cause. And it seems to me that we have now adults who should know better and who have been given places of great esteem who are willing not only to egg it on, but those that aren't egging it on are turning their head in the face of it rather than saying something about it or doing something about it. It's not just the 18-year-olds. It's the 38-year-olds. Well, I, I will concede that Stupidity knows no age bracket. Um, That's very fair. And that (laughs) there are many college professors that uh, have the moral intuition of a thimble. And so fair enough. Um, But like I said— Many at the Barrett Honors College. Oh, yes. Um, (laughs) That that being said, though, um, I want us to be— to be very careful as we we go forwards— and I want to – not only should, should we, we be unwavering in our moral support, uh, uh, but we should be careful with how we want to prosecute this conflict going forwards, not only uh, as far as what we want to support, but um, what we'd like to, to uh, condone as well. What we're talking about now as uh, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu has – um, said he's going to uh, since he said he's going to uh, remove Hamas from power in Gaza, that would entail effectively a full blown uh, ground assault of this of the area. Now Gaza, the Gaza Strip, for context, is uh, about the same size and about the same population as Queens, New York. Um, it's fairly dense. May I may I put that in a context where Arizonans might understand that? Sure, why not? Uh, the city of Mesa is just slightly larger than Gaza when all put together. It's a little rounder, uh, and Gaza is a long strip, but that's the size. Right, and and the population density is about that of a borough of New York City, slightly less, but just about. Um, and so in order to remove Gaza as a governing entity from this teeming mass of uh, like 2.3, 2.4 million people where the median age is somewhere around 15 or 16 years old is going to require a major commitment of troops, and we are going to see... Uh, tragedies like the uh, uh, destruction that we saw at the hospital that was struck earlier today. I think I saw the AP confirm that uh, it was a Hamas failed rocket attack that then actually uh, struck a a hospital in the Gaza Strip and and killed about 200 people earlier today. Um, The great truism in war is that innocent people will die. Uh, But we have to ask ourselves, Given that that Israel has the war aim of removing Hamas and removing its ability to do this again, right? Obviously, we don't want to 
close the, the, the border with, with Gaza only for this to happen next month. So there needs to be a permanent iterated solution to this. And in an area where Israel itself is, what, 80 miles across perhaps with no strategic depth, um, less than that, widest. I think. At its, at widest. its widest. Well, Gaza, Gaza is 25 miles long and seven miles wide at its widest. On average, it's about three and a half miles wide. Mm-hmm. And Israel is, uh, it's got a population of about 9 million people. It's Correct. got uh, an army uh, standing of about 125,000 people, and they will be now surge mobilizing about 300,000 people. That's about the same number of people that the Russian mobilized for their March offensive using a population base 15 times larger and over about uh, 10 or 12 times as much time. So this is going to be severely disruptive to Israel, um, you know, to say nothing of of the uh, loss of life and other other trauma that's already happened. The economic catastrophe is going to be significant as well on, on all sides of this. Um, there really isn't a happy future going forward. There is only one that we can hope that a lasting, workable, iterative piece is, is achieved and sustained with minimal loss of civilian life. And But we can also acknowledge that 99% of all of the humans in Israel and Gaza had no knowledge of or desire for these attacks to occur in all likelihood. I don't accept that. You, you, you don't r- think routine, that— No, I don't accept that. Routine polling of the Palestinians shows 70% and above support for 30% suicide, of the population elected, voted for Hamas in the last election. It's Their not true. It was 45% and 44% voted for Fatah. Two terrorist organizations get you 80%. More than voted for Hitler in Germany. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Lewis Hallman, Inside Analytics. Thank you so much. Hugh Hallman, thank you so much. I, could, I, I would love to have three more hours on this. Unfortunately, we have three more minutes. So you as the attorney and educator and uh, Potter Familius here, take us out. Potter Familius. I've not been cursed at like that for a long time. But I can you. say the FCC allows it, right? Yes, it does. Okay. Um, in this instance, we really, I think, need to continue to place the blame uh, at the – feet of the adults who are supposed to be educating our students. Now, parents, listen up. You've got universities that have, over the last 50 years, moved farther and farther left. And now, as Lewis noted in the last segment, uh, age is not discriminatory on idiocy. And we have many, many adults at these universities. Back to uh, my regard for the president of the University of Arizona for standing up against uh, one of his student organizations, the, the uh, uh, Students for Justice in Palestine, planned to have a rally shortly after the, the murders took place. And President Robbins instead uh, put out a statement and it said, join, uh, uh, in, in response to the, the students saying, join us today to demonstrate in support of Palestine and demand that the U.S. government and University of Arizona divest from Israel apartheid and violence against Palestinian people. President Robbins wrote, As we continue to witness the horrendous acts of terrorism by Hamas in Israel targeted innocent civilians, including children, this clearly is not a political debate or incident related to geopolitical differences. He continued, One of the largest populations of Jewish students in the United States is in Tucson. Let us call this what it is, anti-Semitic hatred, murder, and complete atrocity. He finally added, this is antithetical to our university's values, unquote, values. 
That's what we've lost at our university. And here the president is speaking from his pulpit, recognizing that it was only six months ago that his own faculty voted no confidence for political reasons. A very hard leftist faculty voted to have him thrown out of office if they could have convinced the Board of Regents because he's not sufficiently left. He would not let them run the university the way they wanted. The students responded, stating, uh, or by the way, he added, I want to be clear that the student organization is not speaking on behalf of our university, but they have the constitutional right to hold their views and express them in a safe environment, period, unquote. So this is a president trying to demonstrate that there is a balance. In an environment in which we have had professors teaching the worst of Orwell, four legs good, two legs bad, oppressors bad, oppressed good, and they get to pick the craziest determinations of what is oppressors and what are oppressed. We saw a faculty member at a major university calling out students as oppressors or oppressed. That's what's going on on our campuses. We need to hold those adults accountable. And this particular uh, challenge we're facing, Israel and Palestine, is the basis on which we can open those conversations and start trying to resolve these issues. It's important work that we all need to do together. You know what's interesting about what Robert Roberts did, President Robbins did? When he issued that, they called off the protest. It shows you just need a little adulthood. Conviction. You just need a little adulthood, huh? A little conviction goes a long way. And courage. Thank you. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.